But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Well, if we have not met, my name is Joel, and I'm so glad that you're here. Whether it's your first time or maybe you're newer to Grace, like Paige said, we'd love for you to grab a gift in the back after service, and we'd love to meet you afterwards and just get connected to who you are and how you got connected here at Grace. I have a confession to make, or maybe it's an opinion. I don't know which one. You'll have to decide. Being an older sibling is hard. It is not easy. I don't know how many older siblings are in the room that can testify with that, right? Being an older sibling is hard because here's the reality, right? Being an older sibling comes with responsibility. You take care of the younger siblings sometimes. You have to kind of make the way for the younger siblings. It comes with pressure. You're the first one to kind of venture into the unknown a little bit. You have to try new things. You maybe have this pressure to perform or maybe this pressure to appease, right? But also this, and I heard my parents say this quite often. It kind of scared me how often they said this. They said, Joel, you were the guinea pig of the family. And I was like, what does that mean? They're like, we just tried stuff, and we didn't do it with the younger siblings if it didn't work. And if it did, we just kept doing it, right? We're the guinea pigs. We, we don't know what's going on. Our parents don't know what's going on. They're just trying stuff. We're trying to figure it out. Being an older sibling is hard. And it's hard, especially when you watch your younger siblings go through similar experiences but have a different result. When I was in high school, got my driver's license. I was about 17, and I got my first car, and I remember I was able to drive around my friends for the first time. And so on weekends when we would hang out, I'd drive around, and my parents were very clear. The curfew was 12 o'clock. It was midnight. Nothing later than that. Not a minute later. You're here by midnight, and you can hang out at the house however long you want, things of that, right? So I made sure when I was out with my friends that we were home by midnight. And if it was trending not that way, I would call them. I'm like, I'm five minutes late. I promise I'll be there. I'm 10 minutes late. I promise I'm coming. I'm on my way. And that's how my high school career went. Honestly, that's how I felt in college too. I'm like, I don't want to be late, right? I know I'm out, but I don't want to be late. Well, I got the chance when my brother got to high school to be at the Norton Campus Student Ministry, and I got the chance to hang out with him a lot, but I didn't live with him. And so often I would ask my brother, how's football going? How's life going? How was your weekend? And I asked him one time, I said, Aaron, how was your weekend? And at this point, he was a junior or senior in high school, and he said, check this out. I said, what do you mean? He said, this weekend, we had a blast. He and three other friends of him just kind of ran around and kind of owned the town, and this one weekend in particular, he said, this is what we did. We found out that at Dunkin' Donut, after they close, they throw all of the day-old donuts in the dumpster in the packaging. I was like, so what does that mean? He said, so. 
After all the employees left, we drove to the Dunkin' Donut parking lot, and we went dumpster diving. Got all those donuts into our car, and I was like, that's disgusting, man. That's an op- what are you doing with your time and energy as a high schooler, right? He's like, no, they're all packaged. They're all great still. We tried it. It's fine. I'm like, you tried it? It's disgusting, man. It came out of a dumpster. What are you thinking, right? Then he said this, then, and I was like, then, what else do you do with dumpster donuts? And he said, well, then, we looked around and we wanted to bless other people with these donuts. And so we found out where other people in the church lived and we ding-dong ditched them. But instead of leaving nothing, we left them a 12-pack of donuts. And I was like, that's fantastic, little brother, that you are so generous with your gifts that you have received in the dumpster to give them to people. And so that Sunday, I'm like, like there was a pack of donuts on my, like, on my uh, porch. Do you know what that's for? I'm like, I have no idea, man. I'm not sure, right? And then I was like, what time did you get home? And he's like, I don't know, it was like two or three or something. I'm not sure, right? And I was like, how did that fly past mom and dad, right? And then like that next Tuesday, we have dinner over there. And I was like, did you know what he did this week? And they're like, ha. It was great, wasn't it? I'm like, what's going on here, right? Like, this is just awful. This is wrong. And so a little bit of me was like, man, when I was in high school, I wish I could dumpster dive like he could. I wish I could be out as late as he could, right? And then a little bit of me, a little bit of me, right, was on this side. Now, me and my brother have a great relationship, so this is all in fun. So if he listens to this, hopefully he also enjoys it, right? But a little bit of me was like, man, if I was doing that, it'd be a different result, my parents would be like, what in the world's going on? Why are you out? Why are you jumping into dumpsters? Why are you getting donuts from the dumpsters, right? It would been a whole different set of questions. And I'm like, why didn't he get in trouble, right? The classic older brother, younger brother situation. And today what we're going to look at is this. Inside of the prodigal son's story, Jesus does something fascinating as he ventures into the older brother side of the story What we're going to see here is Jesus, he gives us a perspective by inviting us to see our sonship. He invites us to have a perspective of who we are in light of what he has done for us as sons and daughters of the king. We're in this series called Prodigal God. We're in week three. We're going to carry it all the way through Christmas Eve. And we are looking at the most famous story that Jesus told, the prodigal son story. And inside of that story, we are just dissecting the characters and the plot and what's going on there as a way of reflecting our own hearts and kind of revealing what's going on in our own lives. During the series, like we always do, we have resources in the back on the wall. There's a book that inspired this series called Prodigal God and then sermon series guides. We would challenge you, if you haven't, go ahead and pick one up because here is what we want to encourage. What we believe is that we want to help each other grow in knowing God's story and our place in it. We want to help each other know God's story and our identity inside of that and what it means for us. And today, we're going to do some more character dissection. We're going to look at another character in the story and see how it plays out. And this is what I want you to write down. The older son is lost too. The older son is lost too. Last week we said this, the younger son inside of the prodigal son story is lost. This week what we are going to find out is the older brother is also lost. And what I believe and I think a lot of scholars believe is Jesus Jesus specifically goes into the section of scripture we'll be in today 
to ultimately drive into this idea that the older brother is lost. And some would argue that the main point of this story is to share that. Like we've been saying, stories, all good stories have things tied to them. All good stories have similar kind of identities or similar things tied to them that make them a good or great story. The first story that I was captured by was Star Wars in middle school. All my friends like Star Wars, so I jumped into Star Wars. Is that the theme song? You didn't do that the first service. Just, just revel in this, everybody. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it, right? You all get the pleasure of being in a setting at church where you got to hear Star Wars. Congratulations, everybody. That's amazing, Andrew. You get bonus points today, man. You get bonus points, right? Get yourself an extra coffee in the back, right? But Star Wars was a very, very, very famous, right, Sega of movies. But in, in the story that I got connected to, right, my friends have been watching it. And then I jumped into it and I got captured by the story because there's family dynamics that happen in the story, Right, if you watch the story, in particular kind of the main nine films, it follows the Skywalker family, and that was intriguing to me. But also, there was some plot twists. Now, if you haven't seen Star Wars, this is, this is a big thing that you need to know, okay? This is a spoiler alert a little bit, okay? Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader, okay? If you haven't watched Star Wars, shame on you. Shame on you, right? But Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader, and as I watched the movies play out, I was like taken aback by that. I was wondering about it. I was trying to kind of put the pieces together, why in the world and what's going on. But also it wrestles with some life questions. It wrestles with some life questions, good versus evil, justice and mercy. What does it mean to stand up for what is right? What does it mean to have power? And all of these questions that are wrestled inside of it. And the prodigal son story has it all but does it in about 15 sentences. It has it all and does it in about 15 sentences, and Jesus tells a story that ultimately should draw us to see the arc of God's story inside of it. Let's recap the story briefly, and then we're going to jump into the next section of Scripture, okay? Luke 15, 11 through 12, this is what Jesus says. Jesus continued. He had told two stories up to this point, So if you're interested in going back, they relate to the prodigal son story. They're not identical. He says this, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. What we see automatically out of the gate is this, there's family dynamics happening. There is parental tension inside of this story and there's going to be sibling tension. If you're a kid in the room, which all of us at some level are a kid, we understand the parental tension, right? Especially if you're in middle school and high school. You're like, I know better. I knew better when I was in high school, right? There's parental tension that carries no matter how old you are. But here's the reality. Inside the story, and what we'll see kind of highlighted today, is there's sibling tension. And that starts to play out inside of this story in a unique way. What happens next is this. The story continues in Luke 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. What we see is this. The younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now. Give it to me. Briefly after that, very quickly after that, he packs up his bags and he heads for Vegas. And he spends it all on wild living. He gets rid of it, basically just enjoying himself and the pleasures of life. And what we see is this. 
that all of a sudden this wild living leads to him spending everything, not just resources, but even relationships. And then a famine hits. And in the famine hits, he is in this deep source of need that he's never experienced before. And the story takes kind of a plot twist where all of a sudden the kid that had everything has nothing now. The story continues because all of a sudden the son, he kind of comes to his senses. It says, Jesus said, he comes to his senses and said this, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to this. So he got up and went to his father. I think it's fascinating is the son, this story, the prodigal son story gives us life questions to wrestle with, but the son himself is wrestling with life's questions. It's like, what am I doing? Why am I here? What's going on? Have I messed up everything? I should go back because the father, he's a pretty kind dude. And if he is kind to his servants, maybe I can become a servant and live in the house and actually have something to eat. And maybe have something that I can live off of. And all of a sudden, he starts to head home. And as he heads home, something fascinating and maybe bewildering to him happens. The father actually meets him in Luke 15, if we continue, in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Here's the reality. This would have been shocking to the audience Jesus was talking to. The younger son goes off, spends everything, comes back. He's broke. He's working with pigs. He has nothing to eat. He probably looks miserable and stinks. And the father is expecting and waiting for him. And he goes and he runs to him. The audience would have been like, mercy and compassion? That would have been the last thing I would have given to this son. And then secondly, for the father to run in that culture was a big no-no. There's a high respect, honor culture. So for him to run would have been almost disrespectful to his status. And yet he disregards that for the sake of embracing the son in grace and forgiveness and ultimately inviting him in. And that's what we see in verse 22 through 24. What the father said to his servants after the son tries to explain to him, Father, please just make me a servant. I can no longer be your son. I've, I've done enough. I've been terrible. I've sinned. I've gone off and wasted everything. The father says, quick, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father is ready to party. Seems like an ironic twist to the story, especially if you're listening to it in the first century. Because the son went off and that's what he did. He partied, he wasted everything. And the father wants to receive him and throw a party, a feast, a, a place where he can be invited back in. This would have been shocking. And yet, why does the father do this? Because his son who was lost is now found. The son who was dead, seemingly gone, is now found to be alive and has returned. And this is really key for us to see. Because inside of this story, what is happening is not just a little story of how to do life better, but ultimately this story gives us a picture of God's story in a unique way. Because here's what I would say. God's story is a redemption story about the lost returning home. God's story, the overarching story of God, who he is, what he's done for us, our relationship with him, is a relation or is a redemption story of the lost returning home. And as we walk through this story, that is the overarching of what is happening. 
And the audience would have felt some of that, and some of them would have been invited into that. There was a group that was standing there with Jesus. They're called the outcasts or the sinners, or they would have been kind of the, the left behinds. They're living life however they want to, or they're kind of separated from society, or they're doing things that most people would be like, you oh, know, that feels off, right? So most people wouldn't hang out with the sinners and the outcast. And yet as Jesus tells the stories, they're, they're the ones that are kind of peeking in, kind of walking closer. They feel invited in because they would, they would relate to the younger brother maybe more than anything. They've gone off and done their life, and Jesus is offering them something different, a return home. But there was another group there. There was another group, and they would be defined as religious leaders or the moral uprights or Pharisees would have been a group of them, right? Where they would have been looked at in the society as those are the guys, those are the women that would have been followed. They're the ones in leadership. They're the ones that know how to do the right thing and how to live, and we need to be like them. They have it all figured out. And inside of this story, as they're listening, they would have been shocked maybe repulsed at the fact that the younger son returns. Up to this point, they would have been disgusted, potentially, or maybe just even shocked by how this story has played out. How could the father invite this rebel back into his home? This story is a roller coaster story of sorts, and what is fascinating is this. The story could very easily have ended at this point. I could very easily have ended at this point. We'd be like, that's a, that's a pretty good story. That's a pretty nice story. But Jesus doesn't end it there. Why? Because there's two brothers in the story who are both lost. And they're both lost in different ways. And ultimately inside of that, we need to wrestle with what's next. Jesus isn't done. Luke 15, 25 through 27 is what Jesus says. Meanwhile... So while all this is happening, the younger brother is returning, the father is hugging, the father is getting a party started, the younger brother is coming in, he's probably shocked, he's probably not sure what to do, right? The older son was in the fields, right? Because that's how us older siblings are. We keep working and plowing away, right? We keep doing the right thing. Okay, this story gets really personal for me, okay? So you just got to bear with me as that comes, right? When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He's shocked, Right? So he called one of the servants, asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Here's what's interesting inside the story. The older brother, for the very first time, is finding out about the younger brother's return. We have not read about the older brother in detail at this point. And the first time he is kind of put on the scene is when the younger brothers return and he is finding out what is happening, right? He's finding out from a distance. He's out in the field and he's trying to figure out why there's celebration. Why is there laughter? Why is there music <coughs> happening inside of the house? And what is going on with that? And what we're going to see is this, that as dissimilar as the younger and the older brothers are, there's a lot of similarities to them. Because here's what happens next. Luke 15, verse 28, we see this. The older brother, after he learns about this, became angry and refused to go in. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. This is what I have you write down. Last week we said this. 
But we're just going to start here because it's a different angle to it. I am lost relationally before I'm lost legally. I'm lost relationally before I'm lost legally. This is what we said last week. Spiritual lostness, a relationship with God, spiritual lostness is defined by relationships, not rules. Spiritual lostness is defined by relationship, not rules. I think oftentimes, especially in a church setting, we assume that if we follow all the rules, that everything's okay. Or if we are breaking the rules or not doing the right thing or not showing up on Sunday or not being kind, that's where lostness starts. I got to get my act back together. Lostness starts way before that. Lostness doesn't start with, I'm not doing the right things. Lostness starts with, I'm not sitting in the appropriate seat or the right seat in relationship with someone. That in essence, you and I become lost relationally with God before we ever break any of the rules God has. Because we're putting ourselves in a seat that only God can sit in. The older son is just as lost relationally as the younger son. And I'd have you write this down. It's not on the screen. But the older son is lost in moral conformity, not immoral activity. The older son is lost in moral conformity, not immoral activity. Here's what makes this side of the story really, really, really interesting. Is that for the most part, right, I would say culturally, inside of a church setting, inside of maybe even our own country, moral and ethical standards are king. If you're doing the right thing, you must be a good person. And so for us to see that lostness can be equated to moral conformity is baffling. And I think Jesus wanted us to be baffled by that. He wanted us to see that, that I can uh, assumingly be doing all the right things and yet relationally be lost and yet not really have a relationship with the Father. I am just attuning to certain rules but not facilitating a relationship. The older son's anger and resentment, we're going to find this, is a form of lostness because ultimately the older brother's living out of fear, not love. He's living out of fear, not love, and that's why he is going to dissect this character And what we're going to see is the older brother often will follow the rules but won't facilitate a relationship inside of that. Well, what happens next? Verse 28, it continues, right? He's angry, he's upset, so his father went out and pleaded with him. We're going to talk about the father next week. We're going to talk about the father next week, but this would have been a plot twist. Because the older brother, right, seemingly he's done with it, right? You've been there. If you have kids, you've been there, right? You're like, come enjoy this with me. Come be this with me, right? And if they have an attitude about it, and they're like, no, right? You're like, no, seriously, come. No, like most times after two no's, I'm like, fine. I'll just go enjoy the root beer float by myself, right? I'll just do that. The father doesn't do that, though. He runs after the son. He says, I want to invite you in. And that would have been shocking to the audience just as much as him running down the street to the younger son. Tim Keller puts it this way. Inside of his book, Prodigal God, Both are alienated, he's talking about sons, both are alienated from the father. The father has to go out and invite each of them to come into the feast of his love. So there's not just one lost son in this parable, but there's two. So how would we see the older brother lostness? What does that mean and how do we reflect upon that? We're going to dissect the rest of the story and we're going to put some, some terminology to it. 
But my encouragement is this, wrestle with it. Some of you maybe relate to last week's brother. Some of you will relate more to this week's brother. My encouragement is wrestle with it. Where are you? And maybe it's not just this brother. Maybe you can see yourself in both. Find yourself, wrestle with it. Because here's where the story goes. Verse 29 into 30, this is what the older brother says. But he answered his father, look you, right? It's interesting, right? Look you, right? If if you're a kid in the room or you've been a kid inside of your parents' house and you remember ever addressing your parents in a way that wasn't respectful. I, I remember one time I looked at my dad and I said, what's up, dude? And he's like, I'm not your dude, I'm your dad. And I was like, ooh, noted, right? Noted. It was a disrespectful tonage towards my dad. Here's what ultimately, here's what ultimately this picture is creating and the story is creating for us. You can write this down. That older brother lostness is characterized by anger and resentment. Older brother lostness is characterized by anger and resentment. Why is he addressing the father as look you instead of father or or dad or whatever it may be, right? It's because he is angry and resentful towards the father's actions with the younger son. Andy Stanley would say this inside of one of his books around emotions. If you want to pop that screen or that next slide up there, do you have it maybe? There it is. Anger is the emotion when I believe I am not getting what I am owed. Anger is the emotion when I believe I'm not getting what I am owed. This this whole scene is the nail in the coffin for the older brother. This whole scene is the nail in the coffin for the older brother. He is very, very, very upset with the younger son, the younger brother, of course. But he's also growing in his frustration towards the father. He's growing in his frustration towards the father, and that's why he presents this disrespectful and dishonoring tone of, look you. Because ultimately, what the father has done towards the younger brother sparks something inside of the son that just ticks him off. It ticks him off that the father's actions would be such of grace and such of of a hug and and an invitation in. How could you? How dare you? Not only was there a superiority against the younger son, right, that this older brother probably had. I was working, I was slaving, I was doing this, I was doing that. But that superiority even kind of transcended on the dad. He had a superiority complex that not only went towards the younger son, but also towards the father now inside of this And ultimately, this anger and resentment that built up inside of him is because he believed he was owed something that he wasn't given. He believed I had worked hard enough, I've done enough, I do this, I do that. I deserve what the younger son is getting and I'm not getting it. And ultimately, inside of it, deep down at the root... What's happening inside the older brother is it's messing with his idea of significance inside of his life. This is what Tim Keller says inside of his book. Older brothers base their self-images on being hardworking, moral, members of an elite group, smart, and savvy. This inevitably leads to feeling superior to those who don't have those same qualities. In fact, competitive comparison is the main way older brothers achieve a sense of their own significance. 
that inside of this, an anger and resentment builds up because I believe I deserve things because I've worked for it or I'm in this group or I'm in this club or I have this status that signifies significance in my life. And when you don't give it to me, when you don't present it to me or you present it to someone else, it just wrecks me. We'll, we'll look at this in a minute, but criticism is one of the biggest, biggest, scariest things for an older brother. Criticism just gets to the root of that significance and trying to build it in, and it's all based around the superiority. I remember when I was in college, this is where my story really hit its climax. I can relate to the older brother that my significance was built in the fact that I knew all the right things to do, that I had gone to church my whole life, that I was a pastor's kid, and that I existed inside of that world, and I was seen as good and got the pat on the back, and that a boy. And I went off to college, one of the first things I did was I started checking out churches. Any good pastor's kid, any good church kid, checks out churches, so you can go on Sunday and get connected to a church, Right? And I remember I would be checking out churches. I found one eventually. And as I would leave on Sunday to go check out a church for seemingly all the right reasons, in the back of my mind, and actually it was probably more in the front of my mind, I thought about all of the students that weren't attending church on Sunday, especially those that claimed to be followers of Christ. And I was like, shame on them. And what ended up happening is this. <clears throat> because I was building, growing angry and resentful towards others because I was building my significance inside of this superiority complex that I was better because I was attending church on Sundays and they weren't. And all of a sudden, I started attending church not for the sake of loving Jesus more, being in a community that's going to push me more, or praising God more, but so that I could build into a significance in and of myself that was actually void of Jesus the whole time. And I was just as lost as the guy on the street that had no idea who Jesus was. And yet, I thought I knew it all. That's what Tim Keller, that's what Jesus is saying inside of this story. We can build our significance off of human-based superiority that falls flat on its face every single time. And when I live into that, I become very competitive, very angry, resentful, and comparative very quickly. Because if someone doesn't say the right things or doesn't applaud me for the things that I think I'm doing right or that positions me in a better place, then I don't know if I can hang out with them. So they're not giving me what I need to fill up the tank. I struggle as an older brother. I have struggled, do struggle, will always struggle, and maybe you're in that boat. And the question I would have for you is this. <clears throat> Are you angry, resentful, competitive, or comparative in your spiritual life? <clears throat> Are you angry, resentful, competitive, or comparative in your spiritual life? Here's the reality. If I am an angry resentful Christ follower, it's probably because I'm not following Christ. Probably because I'm trying to build into my own resume and Christ just happens to be an option inside of that. For some of us, right, we become angry and resentful and competitive 
and we're trying to do all the right things and we get frustrated when that person gets celebrated more than I do and no one else sees what I'm doing and no one understands. Or when you hear a story about someone where their spiritual life is thriving and things are going well and you start to compare, well, my spiritual life doesn't feel that way and I'm not sure that I relate to that and is there something wrong with me and I don't know. Or maybe over here, you get angry and resentful when things don't go your way. Older brothers tend to be controlling also, okay? That's a thing with me just in real life. And that's just a nature of spiritual life sometimes. We tend to be controlling. And so I play the card with the father that I need everything to go the way I want them to go. My schedule needs to fit my needs and what I want to do inside of life when it doesn't then what am I doing wrong? And do I need to work harder? And do I need to provide more? And do I need to position myself in such a way that builds into that? Or maybe I'm not appeasing the Father enough. Maybe you're there. Have you lived your life following Jesus, looking around and behind to see where you sit, to see where you're placed? Because if you do, maybe you can relate to the older brother. It doesn't end there. Luke 15, verse 29, he continues, the older brother, says, look you, and he says this, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I'd write it down this way. I can be lost by slaving away instead of joying in sonship. I can be lost by slaving away instead of enjoying being a son or daughter. It's interesting both of the sons disrespected the father. It just looks different a little bit. But they both disrespected the father, and they both have the same mentality toward the father. Did you pick that up? The younger son, if you look back at the previous verses, as he comes to his senses and says, I need to return home, how does he come up with a plan? He says, I am going to make myself a slave. I'm going to make myself a servant inside of his home. I cannot be a son anymore. i become a servant, and so maybe he'll invite me back in. Do you notice what the older brother is saying? The older brother is saying this, I know I never left, but I am slaving here for you. I've never disobeyed. Their mentalities are the same. They are not looking at their sonship. They're looking at the relationship with their father as servanthood and being a slave inside of his house. What's interesting is this, the relationship we find out that the older brother has with the father is fear-based instead of loved-based. Relationship with the father was fear-based instead of loved-based. And it was fear-based inside of his own mind, not necessarily presented to him by the father. That, that inside of this story, the younger or the older son doesn't have a confidence in the father's love for him. That's why he is competing and comparative. He is fearful that if he does anything wrong or he's fearful if he doesn't achieve or he's fearful of if he doesn't do the right thing that he will miss out on the father's love and miss out on relationship and miss out on being a part of what's happening inside the family. And so what he does is he keeps him at an arm's length that it's a fear based. If I provide enough, maybe I can maintain enough. And what he's missing is that is not at all what the father is trying to relate to him with. He was drowning in comparison and competition because he wasn't confident in the Father's love. And like I said earlier, any criticism would have killed him inside. Why? Because ultimately, he was in it for himself, not for the Father. Because ultimately, 
his significance in and of what he could do for himself was more important than what the Father has given him inside of his life. And what we find out is this, that the older son is trying to achieve something that only he can receive. The older son is trying to achieve something that only he can receive. Listen, the older son was trying really, really hard to receive some form of the father's love, appreciation. He, he thought, if I just keep slaving away and keep doing the right thing, then, then I, in and myself, I will start to believe that I have earned it and done enough to present myself as worthy in front of the father. And the father, as he interacts with the son, as we will see next week, he says, no, 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 you're missing it. I'm inviting you to rest and receive my love, not work for it. And inside of that, he misses it. And here's the reality. For some of us, we can relate because we're slaving away spiritually and missing out on the Father's love and relationship he wants with us. For some of us, maybe the story is we've been in church for a while. Maybe we've been part of following Jesus for a while, and it's exhausting you. Because your journey has been, do this, be here for that, make sure it's this, treat them that way, don't say this, don't do that. And you're slaving away, and what is happening is, you are in the field all the time. Right? It's not bad to be in the field, but you're in the field all the time out of fear that you haven't done enough to have his love. And so you're in the field all the time, and you're kind of looking over your shoulder, hoping that the Father sees you, and you're slaving away to no end. It's like a treadmill. You keep running on and face planning on and getting back on and face planning on. Whether that's trying to achieve it through spiritual achievement or moral conformity, ethical decisions, or maybe some position of power, you are competing for and trying to earn his love. And the older brother is on that treadmill, looking over his shoulder, trying to figure out if he's done enough, if there's enough that he can present. So the question I would ask you is this, are you competing for the father's love? Are you competing for the father's love? All right, maybe for some of us, that's been our journey, is we know, we know God loves me, Right? We, we know that there's something there with Jesus, and I know he came and died for me. I know the truth of the gospel, but everything inside of me wakes up every day, and I am competing against others and myself to earn something I can only receive. Because here's what's interesting about the older brother. He didn't run away from home, but every single day he ran from the father instead of into the father. He just happened to be within eyeshot but he wasn't sitting by the Father and enjoying the relationship with the Father. For some of us, that's maybe where we're at this morning. Last thing, Luke 15, 29 through 30. The older son continues, right? Have you ever heard the, the, um, the saying, digging a hole, like you're digging yourself a hole here? The older son's like digging himself a hole, man. He's just like keeps going. And I found myself in that where you like get it all pent up and you're like, this is the moment. Then you're like in the hole looking up and you're like, crap. The older son, he's kind of looking up right now, and he's like, oh, boy. He says this, yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In another translation, Paige was mentioning this, that 
Uh, in another translation, that fattened calf, they translate to uh, beef barbecue, which sounds amazing. And this is what basically our brother is saying in our terminology. You haven't even given me a lunch meat sandwich, much less a beef barbecue, a smoked barbecue feast that you're giving to the sun. What is happening here? I would write it this way. I can be lost working for gifts instead of resting in the gift. I can be lost working for gifts instead of resting in the gift. The older brother is more interested in what the father can give him than the father himself. That, that, that is where the full circle, you can be lost relationally, is at. The older brother is more interested in all the things that the father supposedly can give him, working for that inheritance, working for the pluses of being there, and he could care less about an actual relationship with the father. Tim Keller would write it this way. This is what he says inside of his book, Prodigal God. Older brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. And for some of us, maybe that's where we're at, right? The selfishness of the older brother is very apparent. He is just distraught and disappointed. He's like, you haven't even given me a lunch meat sandwich meal, a Lunchables, much less had some barbecue for me. What, what are you doing, Father? Why are you interacting? And it's because the son only cares about what the father can give him to what? To build into his faulty significance that is based on how superior he is towards others. The father is just a means to an end, not the end in of itself. And that's really important. We can relate to the father just as a means to having a comfortable, cozy, kind of, kind of easy life. As long as everything's going well, then, then everything's fine. But the moment things aren't going well, then I got questions for you, Father. Moment things don't go easy, I'm not so sure anymore. The moment things don't make sense, I'm not sure anymore. Because older brothers are tied to what the Father gives us rather than the Father himself. And the Father is present all the time in the midst of it. I, I use this last... Uh, service kind of as an illustration, what the older son is doing is he is literally bypassing the father every morning. He's walking from his bedroom to the field, field to his bedroom, bedroom to the field, field to his bedroom, in hopes that the father will give him something. And he's bypassing the gift of the father every single time. So the question I would ask is this, are you selfishly interacting with the Father? And, and, and here's the reality. It would be characterized by anger and resentment towards not just the Father, but others, right? It's really easy when things are going well for others and spiritually, like anger and resentment, competitive, comparative. Those are real easy traits for the older brother. And it really dives into a selfish relationship where the father is a means to an end, the end being a glorified version of myself where I have gotten through life in an easy and tangible way. I don't have to complain about it. So we see the older brother, angry and resentful. Older brother is slaving away. The older brother just wants gifts instead of the gift. What's interesting is this, both the younger and the older brother seemingly care less about the father. 
Both of them are dissimilar in a lot of ways. They are not the same, but in a lot of ways they are. They interact with the Father in the same way. I could care less about a relationship, which makes this next part of the passage even more shocking, which we'll look at at Christmas Eve, so we're going to dive into depth. But this is the Father's response, which would have shocked more of the crowd. Everybody's shocked at this point. My son, the Father, said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father pursued the older son and covered the anger and resentment with forgiveness and invitation. What is he saying? He's telling the older son, you missed the gift and have forgotten the invitation of relationship with me. The relationship with me is a gift and you've forgotten that that gift is available to you all the time, and everything that comes with that is with that all the time. He has completely missed out. And here is some encouragement to you. We often talk about the younger son, the prodigal son, who returns to the father, right? We talk about Jesus, who kind of pushes away the religious leaders, tells them off, right? But what we see here is this, that the father is not just receiving one group and pushing another group. He is running after both groups. And if you relate to the older brother, you need to hear that because it is very natural for you to think, I need to get my act together so that the father can see me differently. And what the father wants more than anything is for you to come into the feast of his love. Why? Because Jesus... Because ultimately what we see is that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what the gospel tells me. Romans 8, 14 through 17, Paul tells me this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. <clears throat> the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, right? Fear-based living. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption, the sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That ultimately you and I come to sonship, becoming a son and a daughter. Why? Because God, the father of the universe, sent his one and only son to live a perfect life that you and I could not live, die the death that we deserved, and rise again so that we could have life. And that you and I can be led by the spirit. We can be known as children of God because of why the son of God gave up his life. How awe-inspiring is that? That you and I spiritually sit here with a whole new title and status because of ultimately what Jesus has done for us. And for some of us, right, that maybe is a new revelation that I don't have to be lost anymore. I don't have to be dead anymore. I don't have to be wasted anymore. That there is someone running after me and wants to have a relationship with me. But for others, that is a reminder that you need to clue into. The father ran after you. You are a son or daughter if you've said yes to Jesus. And that status does not change based on how well you do during the week or not. Let me use this illustration. I, I've used it endlessly, but it's just very personal. And it, I think it just hits well for this where we're at. Me and Jess are inside of this adoption journey. And as we continue to go, we'll eventually receive a child. That child who is currently in India somewhere, 
we will go over and travel and we'll receive them as our child. Most of the kids inside of the adoption process don't have any social background, family name, parental name tied to them. Most of them have no history that any of the adoption workers know about. When we go and receive our child, what we are saying is you do not have to do anything. You have to work hard enough. You don't have to present yourself in such a way. You don't have to have some history of to-dos for us to tie our last name to you and invite you to be our son or daughter and invite you into this family. And we will bring them home doing all of the work and paying the cost so that that child has a family. That child who was lost is now found. And here's the reality. Here's the reality, though. Listen. I have two kids that live with me right now, my two kids, Corbin and Ava. And when we do that, I know that it will come with some different conversations for them. Anytime you add a new kid into the family, right, it's less time, maybe it's less gifts, maybe it's less presence, right? It gets crazier. And for them, it could be very easy for them to see this new addition as taking away of their parents from them. You don't see me as much anymore. You don't see this as much anymore. And they could very easily say, what about us? And yet, because we adopted, it doesn't change anything about their status. They are still our son and our daughter, and we want them to know they are just as loved inside of this family, even though they were not the child that returned lost to found. They are our children and they can spend whatever kind of time with us that they would like. The older brother got lost, not physically, but relationally. He was bypassing the chair the father had opened for him by the fireplace every single morning to go out and slave away for that relationship the father was sitting and hoping he'd return to. For some of us, we know the story of Jesus. We know God. We know what's going on. And yet the invitation is the same as last week. I said this last week. For some of us, coming home to the Father is the next step. As a younger son, maybe you've been off from wild living. You've spent everything. You need to know that there is an invitation home. But for you who would relate to the older brother, the Father is saying, come home. Are you slaving away for something that you can only receive? How? Jesus paid the price for the seat that sits next to the Father, and he invites you to sit there. Well, how? I say yes to him. For some of you, it's come home to the Father. For others of you, for others of you, you've made that decision, you understand that decision, but you need to pursue connectivity with the Father. Like I said last week in the book, You Are Special, we said this, that the woodcarver Eli told Punchinello, I want you to come sit with me every day so that you know how much I care about you. Listen, older brothers can get lost in slaving away and forget about the love the Father has for them based on nothing they have done. We need to sit in stillness and quietness to realize the care and the love that the Father has for us, not based on anything that you and I have done. And then out of that, we choose to obey and to live life with the Father because we trust him. And we want to pursue loving him and knowing him deeper. And then lastly is this, 
as the worship team comes up. We need to always, as a church, keep it on the forefront of our mind to celebrate when the lost get found. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't matter if it's a younger son returning from wild living or an older son who is returning from legalistic living. Because inside of all of that, something is happening. Dead is becoming alive. Lost is becoming founds. And we should be a church that celebrates the heck out of that every single Sunday inside of our daily lives and as a part of who we are. In Luke 15, 7, we see Jesus say that the angels in hell, heaven, the angels in heaven celebrate. Wow, that's rough, right? We'll use the first service uh, as the podcast. The angels in heaven celebrate more for one lost sheep returning than 99 righteous. Right? Think about that, right? Jesus could care less about the number, but cares less or cares more about the soul. That there is Someone returning to the Father who is not there currently. So the question I would ask is, where are you inside of this story? Because next week we're going to transition and look at the Father more intently. And my encouragement would be is don't lose sight of what Jesus has presented us with the two sons. Who are you? Where are you in the story? And what does that do for you running into Jesus? Father, we give you this time. It's baffling. This story is baffling because it tells us about you and about our relationship with you. It gets to the deep life questions that we have. And Father, we're grateful that you do that. But Father, reveal to us where we need to be inside of this all. Who are we? What does this mean for us? What does it mean to run into you with this? And then most importantly, Father, would you challenge us in what that looks like this week? Father, would you invite us to be a part of your family, be a part of a relationship with you in unique ways? And then would you show us how to take that to others and invite them to be part of your family? Father, we're grateful for you. We love you. Thank you that you are who you are. We praise you. We pray this in your name.